Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 239. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here is your host. Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 239 you're listening to. My guest today is Damian Rasmussen. Damian is a producer, engineer, mixer, and a man of many audio talents, for that matter, who has been hard at work here in the Bay Area for, I don't know, (laughs) I hesitate to even name a number of years. Let's just say it's been a long time. He's been at it. As long as I've been here, and I got here in September of 1988, and I think he got started shortly before that. So, you know, quite a long time. Anyhow, uh, Damien has worked with a huge amount of people. I'm not going to even begin to list them all. It would be pointless. I'm going to include a link in the show notes to his website. You can check out the list of people he's worked with, his discography, uh, learn everything about him. But you're going to learn quite a bit about him today in today's interview. So, Damien Rasmussen, Damien Rasmussen coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. All right, grab your coffee cups. I'm going to bend your ear a little bit about vinyl and music in general. Mm. Oh, shit, that's hot. Nothing like burning your tongue on the coffee. Anyhow, so you may recall that I talked about Getting a turntable, I got a Pioneer, uh, 1978, 1979, PL560 for those keeping track. Got off the Goodwill site, been fixing it up, and trying out different stylus and cartridge combinations, and I have been totally geeking out on this thing. And I have been listening to a ton of music daily, and I, I have to say, I'm really enjoying it. And... You know, it's not exactly convenient. You know, when it, when you compare it to streaming, sure, it's easier just to, in some regards, to get on the computer and, like, click a few buttons and you're there. But, man, I tell you, it's the process that has really drawn me in, and it reminds me of when I was growing up. Getting the record, putting it on the turntable, going through all the, the motions. I won't take you down the cliche, you know, and reading the liner notes. Yeah, yeah, I've scanned the liner notes, whatever. I'm listening to the record. And I've been buying a lot of wacko stuff, like weird things like I found a MacArthur giving his farewell speech to Congress, uh, General MacArthur, in the 50s. Some Tito Puente, uh, some newer reissued John Coltrane, And man, it's just been a real enjoyable experience. I like it a lot because of the fact that there's no computer. You just turn it on and run it. It's great. It's really uh, been an incredible journey. I'm not going to tell you to rush out and buy a turntable. I'm not saying it sounds better. I'm not going to give you all that crap. I'm just going to tell you, I've just been really enjoying it. And it's really got me back into music in a different way than, than I'm normally into. So, yeah, streaming, sure. It, it sounds the way it sounds. I won't even go down the, you know, I'm not going to compare sounds on you. I'm just going to say it's a different method and it's working for me. Part of it, too, is the hunt. 
You know, going to a thrift store or whatever, seeing what you can find. Oh, he found a great record. Is it in good condition? Is it scratched? Oh, it's a dollar. Oh my God, I'm going to buy it. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, I'm starting to develop a little collection of records here. I'm up to about 60 now. Yeah, I've been buying a little bit. And like I said, I'm not going to say, yeah, you got to rush out and buy a turntable. I think whatever it is that helps you continue to love music, whether that's going to see live music, buying recorded music, um, and in whatever format you want to, downloads, vinyl, cassettes, yeah, what whatever it is you're doing, and it helps you enjoy the, the drug that music is, I think that's great. So not prescribing to any one way here. And here's an example of something that I really enjoy the, the process of. You find a band that you like, I pay for the Google service to stream. And so I was hunting for new records, clicking on new releases, and one after the other, it's like, nope, nope, that sucks, blah, next, next. And then I clicked on this one for the band, the Black Pumas, who I think are an American band from Austin, Texas, I think. And Man, I fell in love with what I was hearing. And I thought, you know what? This is a band I want to get behind and put my money behind. So what did I do? I went and I spent the $25 and I bought the vinyl copy of the record that they put out. And I also bought a t-shirt in the process. And I like that. I like supporting that band. It's like, I remember when I first uh, heard Fugazi I just wanted to buy all the records. I loved them so much. Still do. So the other part of this, too, is when you're buying new records, you're supporting music, really. You're you're supporting your local record store, which directly supports your local economy. Uh, you're supporting a band. Hopefully the band's got a deal to where they're seeing the money for that record. Let's hope so. But in the case of the Black Pumas, I bought that directly off their website. So so I would hope that the band is getting the money off their own website. The great thing for me is, is that it's just, it's given me a whole new appreciation for music and also listening to other types of music. I've got some nutty Henry Mancini records. A wide variety of music really is, is what it's turning me on to. Because, you know, you drop that needle and the tendency to have, oh, I don't like that song. Oh, whatever. It's playing. Just let it play. Oh, actually, this is a good song, right? You know, you just, you let it play, you let it do its thing, and it's it's a great time. And you're, you're not just sitting there clicking on your mouse with a little bit of, you know, an ADD mentality going, oh, no, sorry, I don't want to listen to that. Oh, there's a there's a part there I don't like. I'm going to move on. No, this, this requires you to sit and listen. I mean, you could j- just jump up and move the needle, but yeah, I just let it play. And I think I mentioned last episode, I'm going to be in Nashville as of the airing of this episode. If you're listening to this episode, the week it comes out, uh, I am in Nashville. And I will be roaming around. I'll be at various studio parties. I will be at the show itself. I'll be stopping by all, all the various booths. So if you see me, you recognize me, and you don't know me, and you want to say hi, come up and say hi. Introduce yourself. I would love to meet you. And uh, hear about what you got going on. What's what's happening in your world of audio. So uh, that's it. Yeah, Nashville Nam coming up. All right, watch the hot coffee. 
And stay caffeinated, my friends. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's jump into it. Damian Rasmussen here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Damien. Thank you very much. Thanks for calling out to me. I want to start a little differently than I normally do, and I want to, first off, establish what it is you do now. We'll jump around and go backwards a little bit, too. So where is it you live now? What do you do now? I'm living in San Francisco, believe it or not, and... I'm doing what I've been doing for the last 20 years. I work basically doing studio recordings, producing bands. I have a list of clients that actually I've had for 20 years. Some of the people that I work with, I go let them go through their cycles of when they have to write things, and then I work with them. But 
I also do live sound in, in venues. I work at the Regency in San Francisco. I do a lot of live sound where people call me out and I go mix different places. I just started working with Jackie Green Band, doing some live capture work and also live mixing. We built a new digital rig that lets me do both with the same console using Dante. So yeah, you, working with new tech and staying involved and kind of seeing where things are going and starting a record hopefully this next week down in Big Sur with another client that I've had from before. So staying busy. Yeah. And it seems like you break it up a bit. You diversify, you do studio stuff, you do live stuff. Would the Regency be categorized as corporate stuff, would you say? It's a system tech job. Basically, I work for Ultrasound and I will be the person who goes in and turns the PA on and fires up the console. And then if they have a front of house person, I make sure that if they have their own console, I tie them into our PA system. And then if there's an opening band that doesn't have a mixing engineer, I'll mix that band. And then I've done corporate events where I'm doing the whole event, mixing lav mics and handheld mics. We've done work with Google. Some of the presidential nominees just came through and we did some work with them with talking head kind of thing with video feeds. So yeah. Kind of more AV, but still doing audio. Yeah. Interesting. And you live in San Francisco. We both know, and the audience knows how ridiculously expensive that is. Do you rent or do you own? I rent. Okay. Luckily have a rent controlled place and got in on one of the lull points and the rent goes up every year. Uh, It's still under a thousand dollars, which is good. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh yeah. my God. <laughs> I'm that I'm that cat that holds on with its claws. Hang in there, baby. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. So going back, what was the pivotal thing that got you into doing audio? Where did it become a reality for you or or at least a realization for you? I'd have to say that was back before I graduated high school, my brother was in a San Francisco band called Anvil Chorus back in late 78, 79, 80. And they used to play at the old Waldorf. They did a show at the Kabuki Theater when it was still a surround and Metallica opened for them. I went to that show and I guess you could call it envy of my brother who was actually playing music. And I tried playing music for a little while. And then I realized I was like, yeah, this isn't really what I want to do. And I went to school at UC Davis for two and a half years. And when I was at Davis, I started working at KDVS Radio. I knew these guys because I was a skater. And the guys that did the punk rock show, I got to know them. And they were really kind of influential because we hung out and we skated together. And I listened to their radio show. And one day they came to me and said, hey, are you interested in doing a radio show? And I was like, sure. So they had me do training. I started from the three o'clock in the morning until six o'clock in the morning shift. And I basically spun whatever I wanted to spin. Uh, It was a show called the Etherized Metallic Moonlight. So I played anything from comedy to metal to jazz to whatever. It was totally freeform. And then the program director who actually came in and said, hey, you know, you need to start playing more new music. So I started playing more new music and then I got the call to do the takeover for the metal show. So I started doing an hour show that was like 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock at night spinning heavy metal. And Mike Varney and all these labels started sending KDVS all this new metal music. So I was playing the new Metallica record. I was playing all the bands on the East Coast that were doing metal, Sabotage and all this stuff. So I got exposed that way. And I learned how to cut tape at KDVS doing radio spots, quarter inch and basically 
doing it live. Yeah. What was your favorite thing about working at a radio station? The record collection was phenomenal. I mean, there was probably over 15,000 pieces of vinyl there that you could pull out and they had listening rooms. So you could go in and just listen. And I had found the listening room in the library as well. So I used to go listen to records at, at Shields Library and kind of just wrap my head around what music was and what I liked about it. And I was fortunate because my parents had taken me to concerts. The first concert I went to was Bread and Roses at UC Berkeley for Richie Havens and Joan Baez. Wow. You know, I, I mean, I, I don't even know how old I was. I was probably eight or nine years old. My parents had gone to shows. My mom went to Monterey Pop. She saw the Rolling Stones at Winterland. My dad, who lives in Ireland, he had seen The Grateful Dead. So there was music kind of before I was even around. Yeah. Yeah. Their <laughs> love of music definitely translated to you and your brother. That That's obvious. Yeah. My brother, he picked up a guitar in, in having his situation with his trying to deal with life. He found his outlet in a guitar and he's an amazing guitar player. And I realized when I tried to be a musician that I didn't really have what it took, <laughs> the patience. So I said, you know what? I'm going to learn how to be on the other side of the glass. So I transferred from UC Davis after doing some production stuff there too, working for like student union, putting on concerts. And I was a stagecraft person for the Talking Heads tour, speaking in tongues. Is that what it, No, Stop Making Sense. Stop Making Sense was the show where basically David Byrne walks out with his acoustic guitar and a boombox, and they pull the pieces onto stage and build the stage as the show's going. So I was into music from the stage production aspect of it as well and helping do that kind of stuff. And I transferred down to San Francisco State. I think it was 84. I ended up going to the broadcasting department with John Barsotti and Josh Hecht and basically same school like Clint Bennett went to. I mean, it was just kind of that was that was the situation. That was the only program that was going. And I want to just highlight that. I don't know, listeners, if you've ever paid attention to this one aspect, but the name John Barsotti and also Josh Heck too. I don't think Josh's name has come up as much, but John Barsotti's name has come up a bazillion times. And I think, I could be wrong, I think he's still there. He is. Actually, I was doing sound at the Healdsburg Jazz Fest two years ago, and John lives up in the North Bay, and he showed up at one of the venues, and I hadn't seen him in 20 years, and there he was, sitting there. He looked like a wizard, long, flowing, silver hair. We had a, a conversation, and it was great to see him. Yeah, he's still, I think he's still teaching. He's still recording. Yeah, he's still kind of active in the situation, even though I think he's semi-retired, uh -huh. but I think he's still dealing with it. I don't, do we ever really retire from this field? No, <laughs> I don't think so. I think it's like the mob or, or intelligence agencies. I think somehow we all manage to stay in it. You can't really get out. You know too much. Well, I also think it's kind of a sickness. I mean, we kind of get that infection and then we kind of find like the magic behind the screen and what music is and how it appeals to us as humans. And we get addicted to that kind of sensation of like, wow, this is like something that's happening in real time or even a recording. Like, you know, those people did record it. You're listening to a moment in time and it's, it's creativity. You know what I mean? It's like listening to that sound of something happening. And I think that's the sickness. We get this sensation of like, for lack of a better word, it's like a drug fix where you kind of go, wow. 
and you hit this high and you get like you've done it you played drums in a band that i used to see back in the 90s you know it's like going and seeing you guys play you know you get that buzz of a band when all of them are firing at the same time and you're involved with making them sound as good as they can and then you're kind of it's like the symbiotic thing and it's a rush it's a total rush what are the big takeaways from john barsotti and josh hecht that you had you know it's funny with john it was my first experiences on how to actually place microphones, set up a recording session, how to use a console. Josh was more, when I was there, he was just coming up. So he was kind of peripherally involved and he was dealing with the labs and then he was teaching a little bit as well. But like my main thing with John was it just exposure to the equipment and how to set up a session and how to listen and how to like do the technical stuff, turning on the console, dealing with something like that. You know, it's like having started a radio is much simpler. There was a mic and a quarter inch. This was like multi-track tape. So you had to kind of choose microphones and learn how to kind of talk to a band and actually figure out, you know, like, hey, what do you want to sound like? And that's what I learned from John because he basically was like, hey, you got to interact with the band. You have to make the band feel comfortable. I think that was my biggest takeaway from them was like how to actually interact and be the psychologist and make the people feel comfortable so they could actually perform and do a piece of art. So where did you take it from there post San Francisco State? I was really lucky. My brother was playing in a band called 88 Magic with Jerry Finelli, who played with Red Cross as well. And they were recording at, at Dancing Dog Studio in Emeryville, Dave Bryson's studio. But they were working with Lydia Hawley, who was in Mr. Dog with Dave Bryson. And they had this studio that they had built to do kind of Mr. Dog songs. And Dave was also making a go at being a recording engineer. And I went into a session. I think I'd graduated, graduated in 87. And this was in January of 88. And I happened to be there. I happened to come by the studio because my brother was recording. And I met Lydia and that was cool. And then I met Dave because he had come in to do something. I started talking to him saying I was interested. He threw me into a session. He basically like showed me around Dancing Dogs, showed me how the patch bay worked, showed me the studio. I got involved at Dancing Dog in 88. And thanks to Dave Bryson, I became a studio manager for the most part. I was handling the bookings and getting bands in there. I was bringing bands in who had virtually no money and learning how to do it. You know, I mean, I, he threw me into the deep end of the pool. He basically said, hey, Swim. you got to go. <laughs> yeah, he did. He pretty much, he said, here's my phone number. This is pre-cell phone days, right? He goes, here's my phone number. We had a landline in the studio, you know, and then like, I only called him a couple of times regarding headphone mixes because I didn't totally understand how those worked. And I was, I had a band there tracking and I, I felt like, I was charging these this band money, not much at the time, you know, but it was like getting experience with a gun to your head for the most part. You know what I mean? It was like, okay, here you go. And I was really appreciative of him for doing that. And from that, I actually started working with Mr. Dog as well. I started out as a roadie. I was basically pushing cases and I learned how to be a drum tech. I learned how to be a guitar tech. I learned how to set up keyboards. I learned how to wire a stage. I learned all these basic things from that chance to work with him. I, I think I managed the studio for about eight years and Dave Bryson kind of got bigger, more popular and he ventured out and he was working with Matt Wallace. He was working 
with a bunch of people recording. I mean, he was he was out doing records and I I want to interject just for a second for the audience. For those that don't know, Dave Bryson is one of the members of the Counting, one of the founding members of the Counting Crows. And so that's there's that connection as well. Yeah. And it kept going from there. I mean, I I worked with Mr. Dog. They were getting interest from Bill Graham Presents. We did a show, we did some shows. I mean, again, I'm just a crew guy. And we had another guy who was doing sound. I started doing monitors for them when things started to kind of get a little bit more serious. And But we had a sound guy, Bob, this guy that I don't even know if he's around anymore. But I, I came in through the back and kind of learned the ropes that way. And then that band kind of disbanded. And then Dave started working with Adam Duritz from the Himalayans. And he had been working with Sword of Humor with Tom Barnes and John Flexer and Jim Gordon. And I started working with those guys as well, doing sound for them at some club shows. And it just kind of snowballed from there. I, I actually was doing sound for Counting Crows too. When that took off and started happening, Dave Bryson had done these amazing demos that circulated around. I mean, they were yeah. amazing demos. Yeah. And I was there doing sound at the show at the I-Beam when the bidding war happened. And that was just a magical night. They were firing on all cylinders at the same time. And it just was one of those nights that you just kind of mix your hair stand on in and you kind of go, wow, this band is on fire. And there was a bidding war in the pool room. Remember the I-Beam? There was a pool room oh, in the back. Oh, I remember it all too well. And, and yeah. audience, I'm sorry that some of this stuff is, is you're not going to understand this, but the I-Beam was a classic San Francisco venue on Hate Street. And in, I think it's heyday, it may have been some kind of hall where people spoke. And I'm to understand that President Eisenhower actually spoke in that building years, obviously years prior, to the County Crows playing there. <laughs> it was a classic place. My number one memory of it is hauling all my drum shit up the long staircase to get in oh, the Oh, yeah. Back. No no elevator. No elevator. One staircase that went from the top, second story up, a high second story, San Francisco style, all the way down to the street. So if you had been drinking and you happened to miss a step, you were going to end up in the street. It was a very easy way to get people out of the club at night, too. <laughs> I want to ask you about something because you have a shit ton of experience in this area. How have you aligned yourself with bands so that you're the guy that people call? You're the guy, you're the ally, you're the the support guy. How do you navigate those relationships? These days, it's it's turned into a situation now if a band approaches me or if I see a band at a club or something, I approach them and I try and approach them in a way that I asked them, first of all, for any music they may have already recorded. If I'm at their live show, I'm watching them play. And sometimes I'll, nowadays I go on the computer and I'll do some research and see what's out there already and find out if they're looking to record something new. And a lot of times I won't even take a band into the studio until I've actually spent two or three rehearsals with them, with my recorder, and listen to the songs and see that they actually are happy with the songs, you know, and I get involved on a song level and kind of come at it that way and go like, Hey, this is what you guys sound like. Do you really know what you sound like? Cause some bands still they're in there with their little iPhone recording a song. They don't really hear all the parts working together. So nowadays I come in with a band, I'll bring my little portable rig in and do an eight track recording on site with them just playing live. I take it home so I can actually 
listen to the individual elements, how they're working together. And then I start helping them find their way and make sure that we know that the structure of the songs is, is working before we actually go into the studio. So you do this form, this pre-production with them. Yeah. But how do you cross that point of, hi, I'm Damien. I would like to record you. Where does it go from there? Again, I think that rehearsal room thing is finding that sense of like, hey, you're making art. I'm not going to sit here and change you into something else. I'm going to see what I see as an outsider of what you're trying to do artistically, musically, and say to them, hey, let's do something here that you can put out into the public that you'll feel good about for 20 years, not 20 minutes. You know what I mean? And figure out artistically. And so I'm kind of an enabler. I basically am, am enabling them to take a chance and look artistically at what they're doing and listening to what they're doing. And I guess that's kind of how I embed myself is like, basically I'm going to take a left turn for a second here. I also teach. So it's, I do teaching. I, I did a guest lecture at UC Davis. I've taught for San Francisco state in their live sound department. I've taught at Ruth Asawa school of the arts, a music high school in San Francisco. I did a lecture in Sweden at Ritthaus music, this music school for kids. So Swinging that back around to how I embed myself with a band is trying to get them to learn how to make their art better. Mm -hmm. So, so that's kind of my, my approach to it is kind of like, Hey, I'm going to give you some of maybe what I've experienced and the things that I've learned how to do and fold that back into the mix and make the recipe for this thing more likely to succeed when they go to spend money in the studio or as they're trying to make this piece of art so that they're making a piece of art that is really them mm. and not like a piece of art that sounds like or looks like or whatever, like someone else. You're giving me the moment of what you try to accomplish with them. I'm trying to fill in that gap right in there of how do you actually get in the, in the room with them by selling yourself to them? What is the Damien method of actually saying, I would like to record you what are the steps that you take to, to actually get to that point so they will hire you, let you come in the rehearsal? Wow. You know, it's interesting because I'm doing that with a band right now that's a local Bay Area band that I met one of the musicians when I was working with Deltron 3030 Orchestra. She was in the string section and she has her own band locally. And I've been following them on local media and I've approached them just in a message on, on Facebook and said, Hey, when you guys get back from your tour in Europe, let's get together, you know? And they said, well, what do you have in mind? And basically I said, Hey, let's take some time. Let's go into a studio. I have a studio space that I have access to up in Marin that I can set up a band and be, since I park equipment there, I can have a band up and running in about 20 minutes. And so they can come in and we kind of make it more like a, hey, why don't you rehearse and I'll just kind of, we'll talk and we'll hang out and we'll get to know each other. And you hope that it works. You know what I mean? It's like, that's how I kind of put myself in there and kind of reach out to them. And so with this band in particular, we haven't gotten to that point yet. You know what I mean? Like we've been talking about it. So there's a lot of talk ahead of time about like, hey, you kind of know who I am. I kind of know who you are. It's kind of like dating in a weird way. It's like, you kind of put yourself out there and kind of go, hey, Here's my background. You can check my background. I know but, it sounds creepy, but you know. No, no. I just, that's what I'm, I'm trying to dissect. And I mean, at some point they're going to want to know, what does this guy want? How much is this going to cost us? W you know, what are the fine details, the minutia that 
get you in the door. You know, these days too, I think I'm fortunate enough to have, there's work that comes to me that I can do that I don't have to go through that minutia stuff. They, they know the work that I've done. They're coming to me to do certain things. But with bands that sometimes I find a band that I want to try and work with, they can, they can look at my webpage and kind of see the list of who I've worked with. But, you know, maybe they're not in a place where they want to record yet, you know? So it's like planting seeds. You hope that that seed will grow into something that, you know, and you nurture it, you nurture the plant, you, you go to their shows, you know, you, you support them as artists, you go out and check them out. You, you know, you refer them to other friends, you turn them on, you say, Hey, other friends of mine on social media, you know, this band's kind of cool. Check out what they have online, you know, and try and see if, if you can develop a relationship that way. So it feels natural, not like some forced thing where you're jammed into a studio with a band and you hope that something great's going to happen, you know, and, and everybody feels really awkward. I mean, we've all had those situations in the studio where it didn't feel right and somebody else might've been paying for it and you're there and you're in a session and it's not gelling. And it just, it's like, you're watching this volcano start to raise up and you're just waiting for that moment that it just blows off. And you're like, okay, well that, this isn't really going to work. Thankfully, I've only had a couple of those where it just didn't work. <laughs> Let me ask you this. So we've explored that, the, the inception part of it. Once yeah. you've had a client for a number of years, do you have an MO and how you deal with returning clients? What's your method to maintain such a strong client base? I think that's tied into the fact that I, I am diversified with what I do. I'm not in the studio recording every day. Sometimes I'll be working on a record for six months with one band. I'll have multiple things going at the same time. And the long-term relationships that I have with people, you got to realize like it's they've been in five bands since I've known them. I'm working with Tom Barnes now, who was in Sorted Humor and Engine 88. Engine 88, right. You know what I mean? And it's like, he's down in Los Angeles. We went and did this reunion show in Chicago. I flew out to Chicago on a red eye, did the concert at Riot Fest, got on a plane that night. I didn't even stay in Chicago. And then I flew back to San Francisco the same day. And during that day, I was like, hey, we should record. And he approached me too. And he said, Hey, you said we should record. Let's record. So a lot of these people, my clients, a lot of them, I was also friends with back in the nineties. So it's like there was a community of people. So it's seeing these people and again, helping them continue with their art. And this goes back to that same thing I said, it's like, I'm kind of an enabler for artists. I want them to continue to make art because some of these people have very unique ways of presenting themselves musically. They have jobs. They they do something else. You know what I mean? It's like the art of and the music, again, go back even further. Inside of them is that thing of like, I write songs. Mm. I may not play them for a bunch of people, but I write songs. And I try and treat those people just as importantly as a bigger client who's paying a lot more money or something. I try and create a situation so it comes across that they're just as important. Their music is just as important. And we try and find that aspect. So I kind of got off track a little bit, but how do I nurture those relationships? I stay in touch. 
we call each other. I send text messages to people. I say, Hey, what are you doing? You know, I'm going to be in LA. Let's get together for some lunch. Let's, let's hang out. Let's talk. What are you working on these days? That sense of networking, but more personalized, you know what I mean? It's not like, Hey, what job do you have now? It's like, no, are you sitting with your guitar? Now you've got three kids. Do you have time? Are you sitting down and writing music? Can I help you? Can I, can I help you with your computer? and get you an interface and get you one mic so that you can feel comfortable and start producing art again. It's a continual planting of seeds and nurturing of, you know, using the plant, growing vegetables and fruits analogy, but also it's partial friendship. It's partial client base that you're always staying on top of what they're doing so that if they have a need, you try to fulfill it. And I'm sure it's, you've encountered this where you've done that, but then they go, oh yeah, we're going to, we're going to go record over here with this dude. Oh yeah. That happens a lot and has happened a lot. And I've been doing this since 88, right? I mean, there's so many times earlier on when I would bring bands into the studio at Dancing Dog and we would do demos supposedly, you know, like we'd spent, they'd spend $500 and we'd crank out four songs, right? Those demos would get them interest and then back when the label thing was more prominent, right? Label people would come in and then they would be like, oh, we want you to work with so-and-so. And so I would do a lot of the early work for these bands and then they'd go off and work with somebody else. And I guess sometimes there was a little bit of resentment on my side that they wouldn't work with me because I always wanted that chance and that break to move forward. But ultimately I was always really happy for them because they had worked really hard to create that artistic thing and push it forward. And if a label was interested inside, they're like, they're like hatchlings and you bring them up and, and you work with them. Right. And then they grow into this bigger chicken and then, and then they, they're strutting around and the labels doing whatever, and then they get butchered. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's no, awful. <laughs> <laughs> Those relationships and that time spent and having it be, over a longer arc, you do respect an artist more over like this arc of 10 years. I'm really fortunate that I have been working with some of these people for a very long period of time where it's like, you've seen them mature and change direction and continue to do music and find this thing of like, okay, because it is art. I mean, it's, it's not just like, I'm going to write this pop song and hopefully it's going to make me a million dollars. As we both know, that happens to a very small percentage of people, right? But you still need to be in a situation as an engineer producer to be like, okay, I want to help that person reach that point and be able to feel good about what they're putting out there. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as Check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. So it, it's it's important, obviously, that as people in this position as we are, we have to structure our lives financially so that when we do invest some time into something and it doesn't 
carry forth into the bigger project. You know, maybe like you said, you invest time in doing the demos and you do it, you know, at a lower rate and then they go off and they do a, a, a bigger record with somebody else. So you have to make it so that you're not like counting on paying your rent from getting the big record down the line. You just have to be happy that you participated in out at all, I guess. Yes and no. I mean, I do. I'll put my neck out there for certain bands that I see coming up. You know, it's like people, if I see that they're, if I can identify with them as people that I, I see that their art is actually something I'm interested in, mm -hmm. I'll get involved. But like from a financial standpoint of it, I never was in a situation where like it was okay. Well, I know I'm going to make two points in this record and that's, I'll, I'll do this thing. It's like, there were times where I would go with a lower hourly rate. And then when we're done recording and they pay me $300 or whatever, whatever happens after that, I send them off with a blessing, you know what I mean? And go like, good luck. I hope you can turn what we did into something that furthers your career. And I, I let it go. You know what I mean? I'm like, if I make something that, you know, beyond that, great. If, if I don't, it doesn't really matter. You know what I mean? That's, that's kind of more how I have always approached it is like, I would rather they record and put out a song than get stifled by the money kind of aspect of it where nothing comes out. I mean, I, I structured a deal one time with this artist and it was the funniest situation because I said, okay, I'm going to do this on, on spec. We're going to do a thousand dollars worth of recording. And I don't expect any payment back until you sell a record. And then I want to make back that thousand dollars. And then when that thousand dollars is paid, everything beyond that thousand dollars goes to the artist. I had a lawyer trying to negotiate me out of a signed contract on the phone because he said, that's not industry standard. And I told him, I don't care. That's not industry standard, but it's fair for the artist because the artist owned the music. You know what I mean? They wrote that music. I was just enabling them to get to that point. So throughout this arc of my career, I've definitely had kind of a, a different perspective on how money and art coexist. And I really do believe that like, great, if you can get a deal, if you can make a bunch of money from something, that's totally cool. But making music, you make it, again, it comes back to the sickness. You make it because you kind of have to, you know, inside yeah. yourself. You know what I mean? It's it's not just like, I'm going to make this widget and I'm going to sell it because that's what I do is I make widgets to sell. It's like, no, that's not where I came from with music. And I feel very fortunate I was able to come from a growing bed of musicians in the Bay Area during that time when the Bay Area was very fertile and there was a lot of stuff going on. So my perspective was kind of skewed that way towards artists working and doing their thing and they were getting national recognition and things were happening. I mean, I feel very fortunate to come at it that way. I mean, I, these days, I think for young kids, I think they're going to have a harder time because... They sit in, you sit in a room by yourself now and, you, and people send you tracks to mix. The interaction thing is not as personal as it used to be. I wonder if you come at it the way you do because of the fact that your brother was into music before and you have a sympathy or an, or an empathy and an understanding of how his world is. So maybe your worldview is shaped by that. I'm sure there's something to do with that. 
I think that that's definitely a strong connector in there. But I will have to be honest too. I'm a bit of a mercenary yeah. when it comes to how I do my work. It's like I negotiate a fair rate right off the top. I charge an hourly fee, all that stuff. When it comes down to how you deal with setting up a working relationship with people, for a lot of times they ask, well, what do you, what's the budget going to be for this? And I said, well, how organized are you? Let's get together, do that rehearsal, see how organized you are. I'll give you those first couple for free, and then we're going to talk. And I said, okay, so I have an hourly rate. This is what it is. If you guys are organized, it'll be cheaper. If you guys are disorganized, it won't be cheaper. You know what I mean? There's kind of a cause and effect situation there. And I kind of developed those situations too, where it's like having them be very aware that X amount of time costs X amount of money. You know what I mean? It's yeah. it's not it's not some mysterious process. It's like, well, if you want to take 10 hours to work on this guitar solo, that's going to cost you X amount this, of dollars. X amount of dollars. You know, I'm I'm very clear with people about that. And these days in a situation like this, I don't mean to sound harsh, but like I do not release files until the check clears. You that know sounds I mean? fair it, enough to me. It, it comes down to it. Like if you're going to send out rough mixes to people too, it's like if I know the clients and I trust the clients and we've had a really good working relationship over 10 years, mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a lot more lax about that because I know, you know what I mean? It's like you, you get a good sensation from certain people. But if it's a client I don't know and they were referred to me and I'm like, okay, I don't know who these people are. I don't know who the business side of this situation is because sometimes it's the band is the band. And then there's a business arm that is not in the band that's like putting the money into the project. I try and keep those two elements separate, the art and the finance part. I try and keep them separate, but sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's very difficult because you know, I do this for a living like you do it for a living. It's making sure that you get compensated for the work you're doing when it comes to like something you've negotiated and you're like, okay, I'll do this much for this much money. I don't tend to do project rates where you're said, okay, we're going to do this for, let's say we have $10,000. We're going to make this record. It's if we come in at $8,000, awesome. You know what I mean? We did it under budget. If it gets to 10,000 and they're not done yet and we still need another couple thousand dollars, they're going to have to come up with that other couple thousand dollars. I mean, because chances are it just didn't flow the way they'd wanted it to. And I don't think that the working people who do the work should be penalized for that. How come hourly versus day rate for you? Because if I go in and do a session and it's four hours long, I don't feel comfortable charging somebody for a day rate. Mm, You know what I mean? It's like if, if I'm in a mix for six hours I kind of have always leaned towards the artist's favor in that manner. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Where it's like, okay, you don't go in a cab and basically say, okay, I got 10 bucks. You know what I mean? It's like you pay for the entire thing, right? And you don't walk in with 10 bucks and he takes you two blocks and you still owe him 10 bucks, right? I mean, right. it's kind of a meter as you go thing. And to me, that seems more fair to the artist. <laughs> I strive to try and get things done in a timely manner, get things done as quick as possible so that everybody's happy. I think that comes from the days of when I used to manage the studio. We used to do two sessions a day, 10 to six and six to 12. So you had to get it done by six 
And then I would want to get done at 5.30 because I knew another band was coming in at 6 or 6.10 or whatever. And I had X amount of time in between to stuff some food in my mouth, clean up, and then get ready for the next session. So I've always kind of approached it where it's like, okay, we got X amount of time. Let's make this happen and get a good product, but stick to the timeline. Your time in San Francisco leading up from where we left off earlier up to now, what have been the challenges for you as an audio professional over the years? I would say a couple of them were based kind of in how the industry changed from a label-based situation back to this thing where you kind of have to do your own thing. And then the technological change from having to be in a studio to where now you can be anywhere. You know what I mean? So it was like, it, it was a shift where and I had a very interesting bridging point in there where Dancing Dog kind of went through what it did. Dave got more involved with the Counting Crows. The studio was kind of changing. And then they kicked us out of the building. Like they kicked everybody out of the Emeryville warehouse. So it was like every art, anything got kicked out and they turned it into condos, right? That was the writing on the wall for that model. I worked at a bunch of different studios during that time continuing to do stuff like the old Bayview recorders out in Richmond. I worked there. I did some stuff at the plant. I did some stuff at Hyde Street. I started working at a bunch of different studios. And that was still when it was very analog. You had tape. And that was why you went there was because they were the only ones who had the equipment to do what you were going to do, right? So mm -hmm. I branched out and was like, okay, cool. I'm going to do this. I'm going to get out there and work in these other studios, continuing to do projects. And Dancing Dog did what it did and morphed on. So then I was kind of floating free and that was, I was being a freelancer. So I was staying busy doing other work. Then I went on a, <laughs> there was a local band, Oranger. I don't know if you know who that band is. I remember. Back in the nineties, they were kind of a trio, power trio that had extra band members and stuff at certain points. I worked on a couple of records with them where they had bought some gear like a tech investor had invested in the band and bought them a two inch 16 track and a Pro Tools rig and mics and stuff like that. So I did some work with them and we finished one of the second records where I was mixing some stuff and we had a party in Amsterdam and the label guy flew us all to Amsterdam post record, had this thing. I got a call when I was in Amsterdam on my home line got the message, called the guy back. He said, okay, instead of flying back to San Francisco, fly to Los Angeles, I've got a gig for you. You're going to be doing sound for a teen band. And I was like, okay, cool. I mean, that's the kind of way my career has always been. I kind of go where there's interesting things to do. I came back to Los Angeles, my first show with this band. I met them that night when I got off the airplane. They were four teenagers, the Swedish band called the A-teens. And they were a universal music priority. So my first show was the next night in Las Vegas opening for NSYNC <laughs> at the MGM Grand Arena, right? I don't even know. I had familiarized myself with the band a little bit. I mean, I kind of knew this was kind of happening, but I didn't know it was going to happen as quickly as it did. And my job was to take this teen track act and do an opening slot, opening for NSYNC, who was the biggest band in that time, right? And the second night of that run, I got in trouble with the NSYNC people because their manager came up to my tour manager guy and said, hey, what's wrong with your sound guy? He's making it sound like Metallica. And my manager said, yeah, that's why we hired him, because we want our band to sound good. 
we want it to come out of the gate firing and being this thing, not just some, when you go to big concerts and you see the opener and you kind of get this strange, hazy sensation because you can't really tell what the band is doing. You're like, yeah, it's a band. They're doing their thing and you don't get a strong impression. I was hired to make a strong impression. And I worked with that band for two and a half years touring the world. And basically what that afforded me was, I call that my dot-com job because it was during the dot-com boom. Right. And I was making money. I was on retainer. So I was I was making money when I wasn't working. So they would have a time for two weeks where they needed to record two songs. I was being paid to stay as an employee. So it was a job. I was like their production manager and technical kind of coordinator. I coordinated all the equipment. I went to the rehearsals. They actually had a band in Sweden that I worked with as well. And so talk about a whole, like a left turn from doing alter, alternate rock in San Francisco to all of a sudden working with like super sugar teen pop, but it was a job. I want to dissect that moment in time for you. Yeah. What did they mean by you're making it sound like Metallica? I come from a rock background. So it's like when I'm doing live shows, I kind of like a bit more of a bombastic approach, not really loud, but a big sound. Why was that in conflict with the sync management? Because it sounded badass. Because, yeah, because I I had had experience because I'd worked with the Counting Crows. We had done larger venues. We had done Irvine Meadows opening for Midnight Oil. We had done the Pantages Theater in Los Angeles opening for Bob Dylan. So I had done larger PAs. And to me, mixing on a larger PA was like being in the studio. You're like, okay, let's see what this thing can do. You know, it's like, and you would turn it up and be like, okay it's going to be nice and big and full sounding. And as an opener on a tour like that, you're kind of supposed to stay in your place. You know what I mean? You're not supposed to overshadow. <laughs> I see. So that's why I got in trouble. And I don't think, I don't think it was like a malicious, like you're going to get fired kind of in trouble. It was more like, Hey, you should know your position. They got it though. After I did it a couple nights in a row, the NSYNC guys were actually like, wow, okay, this is kind of cool. Because it wasn't like NSYNC. It was like, it was this other kind of thing. It was like power dance music. If you don't turn power dance music up to a certain level or or have it sound kind of big, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. So that's that. Yeah. That was why I kind of, it, it got to a point where later on in that tour, I was in Europe and the European house techs that own these PA companies from Denmark and Germany and even in England. I mean, it's like, you're on these systems and that's like the the land of Britannia Row and some of these companies that like they take real pride in their PAs and their PAs that's the land of the Rolling Stones and the Who right where it's like these really loud rock band type PA companies i was doing sound for a string of shows in germany supporting a number one record and basically the PA company was like Damien turn it up come on, you're not even hitting the system. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, okay, you know, it's like, okay, I'll play along. It was neat because they were into the music enough. You know what I mean? It was like, it was bringing the audience and the band together. And again, the same kind of thing as what I was doing with recordings. It's like making that artist kind of shine. You know what I mean? That's your job as, as a person who's working behind the scenes and pushing knobs and faders and whatever you're doing. It's not about you. It's about how the audience is going to respond to what is happening. 
you're just an enhancing factor. You're you're someone who's like, okay, I'm gonna fly the plane, but do you want that ride to be fun or do you want it to be painful? I, I tell people that are doing sound, like I when I'm working in the Regency, I'm like, okay, so your best guide is gonna be the people right in front of you. If their hands are up at their ears, whatever you're doing isn't working. They are not enjoying themselves. If they start talking more than what the band is doing, they're not enjoying it. You know what I mean? You have to kind of rise above and make people enjoy it. And that's with recorded music and live stuff. I mean, it's art that's presented to the masses and you have to please the masses because they buy the tickets. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. How do you, with regards to your equipment and the equipment you choose, how do you manage your gear and your finances? Do you have gear lust? Do you constantly like flip through magazines or go online and go, what am I buying next? I went through a phase when I bought my own Pro Tools rig. The first Pro Tools rig I actually bought for myself was after that teen tour. I had some extra money. I knew I was going to be investing in myself and rebranding myself and reintegrating myself into a digital reality. Pro Tools was blossoming and it was everywhere. And I was like, you know what? If I'm going to do this, I need to do this and I need to buy my own rig. So I I had money set aside from that teen tour thing. And I went into cutting edge and sat with Jeff Friss and basically put $27,000 in cash on the table and walked out with a Pro Tools HD rig fully stocked. And from that point for another 10 years, I bought equipment to augment everything that I'd had from before, but I had a real policy in mind of like, if I can't afford it and I don't have the cash to pay for it, I'm not going to buy it. I definitely had gear acquisition syndrome for a little while there. I got into the whole 500 series thing. I mean, it was like, I look at it as like tools. I mean, you want to buy tools that are going to enable you to make good music. It's not about the tool. It's about enabling the artist to get that emotion into this medium, right? So I bought 500 series stuff for different reasons. I was like, this one is like a nice forward and fast one. This one's a little sludgier and slow. So I have a variety of things that I bought and I, I use them all the time. And I reached a point where I, I had enough stuff to where I was like, okay, this is cool. And for the last eight years, I use that same gear. Every once in a while, if something cool comes up that I think is going to make my workflow better, I'll go buy something and try it out. 
plugins. There's so much new technology that is like mind blowing. There's stuff that really makes doing your job easier and stuff that in your mind, you're like, how would I do this? Right. And then people have thought about it and made a product and it's like, okay, that's cool. I'm going to use that because that helps me get there quicker, save money for the client. But in general, I, I'm not in debt. I don't owe any money to anybody. I don't owe any money to credit cards for gear that I've purchased. I bought a few plugins recently. I've already used them a bunch of different times on projects in the last six weeks. So it's like I'm using everything that I get. What's your best advice to other audio professionals on how to manage money and plan for the long term? Wow. I have an accountant and I've had the same guy for probably 25 years. And we had a discussion very early on about how to structure purchases and the amount of money that I make on a certain gig. Because I'm an independent contractor, say I make $5,000 on a gig. If you don't want to have 28% of that $5,000 going to taxes, you have to structure in purchases of equipment so that you can get a write-off. So it's that game of like, okay, I made X amount of money. I do need to invest in myself. And it's not just gear lust, it's functional business practice so that in the end of the year, when you got to pay your taxes, you have a buffer that's going to save you for some of the equipment that you bought. And you've got to approach it just like a corporation does. You know, you really do have to think of yourself as a functioning corporation doing a job. You need write-offs, you need income. And you need to find that happy balance. And, and the advice I would give to people coming up is don't just go out with a credit card and drop 10 grand and then be in debt and hope that the money is going to come rolling in because <laughs> it's that's not how it works. There's been rough times in my career when things have changed and scenes have ended. And you're sitting there, all the bands you worked with for 10 years have now gone on and had kids and aren't there. So you have to constantly reinvent how you approach this stuff. You bring certain things with you, work habits, equipment that you have, how you've grown with technology. You bring all those things you learn, but don't just continuously carry this anchor of debt along the way because that's an added stress that's going to start showing in the work you do. I think, and I've seen it happen to people where they're really trying to be creative, but you can tell that they're a little uncomfortable too, because they're, they're thinking about the dollar amount, right? Cause they have to make that bottom line or they're going to go bankrupt. I did not have family. I did not have kids. So I have more gear than people who had kids. <laughs> you make that decision and with that decision comes the pros and the cons. And one of the pros is you have more expendable income, I would assume. Yeah, me personally, I put money aside. I know full well that like I don't have a company backing me, putting money into a 401k for me. You know what I mean? I don't have the kind of structured income where it's like every week I make X amount of money. Whenever I'm making money, I've learned to take a percentage out and split it off and be like, okay, this much money has to go for a possible future. This much money gets stuck in for taxes. This much money pays for my monthly expenses. And then the rest is what you get to have your fun money or you, the way you get to go out and have dinner or you, you know, but you have to have a life too. You can't just put yourself in a box and just be an engineer 
or just be on tour 24/7 365 days a year. I mean, you have to have a life. You have to find that balance between okay, I work and therefore I live. You have to find a balance that works for you so that you can live your life and take time off from work and not feel so freaked out that when you come back from work there may not be anything there. Work to live, not live to work. Yeah, you know, and granted, I'm probably still not really super great at it sometimes because I do disappear and take jobs and disappear. And in relationships, that's hard for somebody who expects you to be around at certain times of the day. You know, it's like I work most weekends because that's when people have time off to do recording and art and stuff like that. You're working as like this adjunct to people who may have regular day jobs. So they can only work in the times that aren't regular daytime. They're working in the evenings and weekends. So that's when you work. That's when you do stuff. And in this modern age, thankfully, I do a lot of work by myself where I sit with a computer and can do work. And then I send files to people so I can work in the middle of the night or I can work in the morning. It's kind of up to me. And then I structure it that way to find that balance of like, okay, I want to walk away from this. You have to have that. Do you have any positive habits that you do that help you kind of maintain your sanity? Do you do any health things? Do you meditate, yoga, any of that? Yeah, I do. I walk every day where I get outside and walk and turn off and don't stare at my phone. And I get out and walk for a good 45 minutes to an hour every day. I try and do an exercise regime that I came up with where I use a yoga ball and do that every other day to do core exercises and stuff so that when you're sitting at a computer, you're not just turning into a slouch that bends over all the time. I go out to concerts. I still go out to art museums. I basically try and get culture wherever I can mm. outside and see and interact with people. Yeah. I mean, as far as habits, I don't really drink. So I don't have that expense. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I, I got that out of my system really young. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's kind of try and live healthy to have a positive impact on your career and, and on, on what you do. Cause I chose this career, you know, I didn't just fall into it. I made conscious decisions to go down this road and I, enjoy it. I really do enjoy working with artists. I think it's it's one of the most fulfilling things to be able to work with someone who's having a creative idea and help them through that process. So that at the end of that idea, they feel fulfilled and they're like, yeah, that's a good idea. And it came across. You have to keep your senses about you and meditating every day. You know what I mean? Like at some point you have to stop and disconnect and turn off so that you can be involved in that creative process takes a different kind of energy than just stamping a widget out every 20 seconds. It's a different kind of thing. It is. Well, we're about out of time. Damien, thank you so much. This has really been great. Just personally great for me because you've been around the Bay Area for a long time and, and we've known each other for a long time. And I enjoy really hearing about your path and the decisions you've made and kind of the, the MO you take. I've learned a lot from you today. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This has been really fun. And you mentioned a website. What's the website people can learn more about you? DamianRasmussen.com. We'll put a link in the show notes to your website. So great to see you. Take care. Thanks a lot, Matt. Bye-bye. Damian Rasmussen here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thank you so much for being with me today. 
Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Want to give a shout out to all of those that worked on today's show, and that includes Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme music, and Mr. Chuck Smith for his wonderful voice. Head on over to workingclassaudio.com, sign up on our email list to stay on top of what we have going on, and until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio... This is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.